Good morning. I don't know about you guys, but it's always a Christmas miracle when I make it through Izzy Worthy without bursting into tears. Whew, good stuff. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please flip to Acts 6. And full disclosure, we're going through a huge passage from the Scriptures, and I'm going to be coming back to the Scriptures pretty frequently. So uh, I would prefer if you had your Bible out, because I'm going to be referring to it as we're going through. So I've been going through a series in Acts, and uh, last week, we, the, the whole idea is we're looking at family history, we're looking at the beginning of the church, and trying to see what the beginning of the church was like, what lessons we can learn from it. Uh, and last week, we looked at persecution, persecution aimed at the church. And I'm, I'm going to continue in that theme today, a slightly different perspective. I promise uh, it lightens up a little bit. The next message in Acts is about the conversion of Paul. That's really good. I'm excited about that. But there are two back-to-back -back pretty challenging passages that we, we have to deal with. Uh, but God is the one who laid out the Holy Scriptures for us. All of it is beneficial for us. And so I trust that we will gain from it as we jump in. So to set this up a little bit, we're going to be looking at Acts 6, 8. And then we're going to look at all of Stephen's speech. Um, so... Stephen is somebody who has shown up in Acts, and it's a really interesting way that he shows up. Essentially, the apostles are doing their thing, and they realize we're doing a bad job of taking care of our widows. And uh, I think in some cultures, they might see that as like a lesser job, but not for the church. Uh, the church in the early going thinks this is incredibly important. And them picking Stephen, they're not just saying, oh, let Stephen do it. They're like, no, this is a key part of who we are and what we do. And they, they choose Stephen, who's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we know about Stephen going in. And then we get this passage. So let's read it together. We're going to start, we're going to read Acts 6 through and 8 through 7, 1, and then we'll unpack his speech. So let's read it together. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of Stephen. Thank you that through your word, through your spirit, Stephen speaks to us today. That you speak to us through him. That his impact has been wide-reaching and that it reaches us even now. Soften our hearts to hear the hard things Stephen has for us. Help us to see your goodness. And in the comfort of your love for us, may we explore this passage in a way that pleases you. And in Jesus' name, amen. So one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, C.S. Lewis, um, if you haven't read any C.S. Lewis, 
new homework for you. Uh, as an English teacher, I'm allowed to give you that. Go read some C.S. Lewis. It doesn't matter where you start. Just throw a rock. You'll hit some genius C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote this great book called The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce is a hypothetical. It's not supposed to be a kind of uh, actual representation of the Bible, but it's just a thought game that he plays. And in The Great Divorce, uh, a group of people are in hell, and his version of hell is an ever-expanding suburb, which is interesting. But uh, these people are in hell, and every now and then they can get on this bus, which will take them to the outskirts of heaven. And when the bus gets to the outskirts of heaven, uh, usually heaven will send these people from their past life to come and appeal to them that they should turn from what they have done in the past, and they should reject those things and turn to Christ. And the book is about observing these interactions between the, uh, the residents of hell on the bus and these messengers from heaven. And what comes up time and time again is that there's always something that the person from hell has clung to so tightly that they will not relinquish, even though potential glory is on the horizon. And the, the messengers, their message is the same the whole time. There, there's this mountain in the distance, and at the peak, the idea is a face-to-face -face interaction with God. And they're saying the only way to get to this mountain, the only way, is to let go of that thing that you are holding on to, whether it is your sense of self-worth and self-righteousness, whether it is you feel like you've been injured and you're a victim and haven't been paid back appropriately, whether it is there's all sorts of, C.S. Lewis very uh, brilliantly, uh, if you read it and are not convicted, I'd like to meet you, you're a really great person. Uh, but The Great Divorce raises this question, which is what is it that holds ransom over us? What is it that when the Spirit makes its appeal to us to move towards God, what is the thing that is most likely to hold us back from that movement? And Stephen, as he confronts this group which has accused him of saying the temple doesn't matter, the law doesn't matter, he points out that the people in front of him are rejecting salvation for three things. The pride of tradition, the pride of family, and the pride of self. And you'll notice those three have good things in them, definitely. But what he's going to say is that even these good things were able to keep these people from seeing God. So we're going to start. Uh, we often refuse salvation due to the pride of tradition. So Stephen begins his defense here. If you'll look with me at 7-2. And Stephen said, and now think very briefly about what's going on. Stephen is debating with these highly intelligent, educated people. He's the guy who, from the outside, his whole job is just to take care of the widows, right? People would look down on him for that. And here he is just outsmarting them to such a degree that they have to plant people to accuse him of things and drag him in front, okay? And so here, this very humble guy begins his very educated response. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. 
So Stephen begins his defense by telling the Old Testament story. And he goes from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to David to Solomon. And a few of the themes he highlights is, because people have been saying, oh, you don't trust in the temple, you don't think the temple's good, you're saying it's going to tear down, he starts by kind of making this point, which is, as he goes through the whole story, he points out that, hey, the temple wasn't there with them. And yet God still was. And what he's going to try to say to them is, you have identified God's presence with the temple so strongly that you've forgotten that God acted before there was a temple, and that the temple itself was meant to point beyond itself to God himself. He starts with Abraham, and you notice he says he never had an inheritance, he never owned a single foot of land to even build a temple on it. He had no temple and no real home. God told him to go, to leave his home. He was a wanderer, yet God was with him. He talks about Joseph. If you look in 9 through 16, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. He was sold into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Okay, so he sends him there to Egypt. God is still with him. He tells the story of Moses, and he talks about Moses standing before the burning bush, and God is with him. He stands on holy ground. Now, what was this holy ground? Was it the place itself was inherently holy? Was the bush special? No, God himself made it holy. So he was not in a temple there either. In fact, they spend 40 years wandering around with no temple. All they have is this tent. And finally, he gets to David. So let's look here at the end together at 744. We're jumping around. Hang with me. I believe in you. You got this. Uh, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So he's gone through this whole history, and we got to David, the great King David. Surely he was the guy the temple was built. But no. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. It wasn't even David. Solomon gets to do it. And he ends with this. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? His point is clear. You think that the temple says that God is with you. And I say that God himself is larger than the temple. And that the temple and the law were meant to point towards God. And overshadowing all of this is the sense that, and when God actually showed up, guys, when God came as Jesus, even though you say you love the temple and you say you love the law, you killed him. You killed God when he showed up. So after all this time with this thing that was supposed to point towards God, when he actually appears, you rejected him. And I've spoken about this quite a bit in here, but it's just a reminder that all of these things, worship, communion, the scriptures, fellowship together, are all meant to point towards Christ. They are good things, but they are good things insofar as they point us to Jesus. 
This is one of Jesus' primary messages over and over and over, is that religion will not save you, only I will, is what Jesus says. Religion will not save you, only I will. And it is so easy to get wrapped up into the tradition in a place to even love your church building, to love all these good things, and let that be an end in and of itself. There are a lot of people who go to church every week and have failed to cast their gaze beyond what it's pointing to towards Jesus. So if you've been doing the church thing for a long time, you have to constantly ask yourself, do we know Jesus? Have we sought his face? But I would say this kind of love for tradition is not just for the religious. Uh, I teach Dante every year. It's one of my favorite things to teach, um, the, the famous poet, Italian poet. And he talks about that. He believed there was kind of objective revelation and subjective revelation. And he said, for some people, objective revelation, like the, the church, the scriptures, communion is enough. It, it draws you to God. And he said, but for other people, they need subjective revelation. And what he means by that is like something outside of the church. Like you hear a song and it just taps into you like, there's something more than just what I'm seeing, the world around me, or the arts really move you, or maybe, uh, maybe the beauty of mathematics uh, really moves you. Maybe it's art or nature. Many of you in this room have that experience where it wasn't something in a church building. It wasn't uh, the scriptures themselves. It was a moment on the beach or a moment walking through the wilderness or uh, somebody did something beautiful for you and something turned in your heart. And you said, maybe there's something behind all of this. We live in a really uh, materialistic, a dominantly materialist culture, which means that we, we think everything is kind of an illusion. We say there's no justice or mercy, there's just power. Uh, there's no love or romantic love, that's just bodily chemicals going off. There's no self-sacrifice, that's just evolutionary survival instincts. There's no moral truths, just preference. And there's no true beauty, you know, years of natural selection have just taught us to believe that some things are beautiful so we will survive. Everything is basically an illusion that covers our survival instinct, is frequently what we hear. But I think that all of us feel the lie of that someplace in our lives. Maybe you burn for a just society and you twitch a little bit when you hear people say that morality is just relative, Right? Uh, well, yeah, some people do right or wrong, but there's not really right or wrong. It's just preference. And, and you feel kind of, that doesn't feel true. It feels like there are some things that are actually objectively wrong. Maybe you love someone, whether that's a spouse or a child or a parent or a relative or a friend. Maybe you love someone with a feeling that when somebody says, oh, that's just, you know, biology, you're, it's a little sad for you to hear that. You're like, it feels like it's more than that. Maybe you see a film or a play or you hear a song and it leaves you crying and it's hard to explain why you have that reaction. For humans who supposedly have been trained instinctually to choose survival over all else, we certainly do spend a lot of time on kind of meaningless, beautiful things, right? On things that seem to waste our time and are hard to square with self-survival. My charge to you is the, the Bible actually says something about this in Romans. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It actually says that feeling you have of when you see something that's just devastatingly wrong, when someone is wronged 
and you're like, ah, oh, you, uh, that feeling comes from God. You have implanted in you a sense of right and wrong that's not just natural selection. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he made. My challenge to you is if you feel that push, I would say explore that inconsistency. If you feel that, don't wipe that away. Why do you feel that way? And my challenge for all of us is that I believe that it pushes us towards something greater, that those things find their culmination in God. And so Stephen here is speaking to a religious audience and saying, you have the temple and you have all these things, but you missed God. I think another way we could say that is you have music, you have the arts, you have mathematics, you have you know, all these amazing things, you have technology, you have all this, and you missed God. You missed what the good things of that were pointing towards. And I would say this as a comfort to us. All those who seek, find. If you seek God, he will be found. He desires to be found. You can't miss God by accident. So Stephen says tradition is holding you back. He also says your family, your pride in your family is holding you back. This may sound like a very American point to make, I think, but hang with me for a second. He points out as he goes through this story that there's two lines of, there are two, there are two threads, there's two groups of people as he's going through. And the groups tend to be the prophets or the messengers from God and those who are disobedient to God. So uh, let's see. If you look with me at like verse 23 through 29, when he's talking about Moses, let's just look at what he says about Moses here. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So we have this beginning. There's Moses, the messenger, and this person who's rejecting him. And it keeps going. Jump to 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Kind of a joke there. Who made you ruler and judge? Oh, yeah, God did that. Uh, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside 
and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us for gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Stephen is trying to make a point. You believe that your family is this pillar of faithfulness. You think your inheritance is the prophets and the messengers. But your fathers and mothers were the disobedient ones. They were the ones who rejected God. That's your inheritance. Your inheritance are the people who turned from God to Egypt, the gods of Egypt. Most of you know that I come from the South. Uh, it has quite a heritage, quite a mixed heritage. My family was unique in my neck of the woods because uh, even though we were a white family with a long Southern history, we didn't buy into kind of the South will rise again lineage. And while it was everywhere around me, there were no Confederate flags in my house, but that culture was everywhere. And my own history, John Calvin Barber fought in the Battle of Shenandoah and took a wound fighting for the Confederacy. And so while I came, by the time I was in high school, to believe that uh, the Civil War was God's judgment on the South, learning about my Southern heritage has always been quite a journey. I remember sitting in a movie theater, uh, some of you have seen the film 12 Years a Slave, and one of the things that movie did so well, uh, based on a true account, was it showed pictures of the environment that I love, my home, the South, and juxtaposed it with these awful things that people like my relatives were doing to others. And it hit me as I was watching it that that environment that I loved deeply represented a type of hell for many other people. Uh, if you're someone like me and you live and come from the South, you have to do this reckoning over and over where you, you're saying, that person was such a good person, a good man and woman in so many ways, how could they do this? The land was so beautiful, how could they do this on it? Uh, the historic city market in downtown Charleston that I love visiting is a few blocks away from the old slave mart, which is now a museum. The pride of family, the desire to have a righteous family history, the pride of place, I believe, has kept many Southern Christians from full faithfulness to God. Now, I don't know what a good analog is for the North, and I don't the Northeast and the Long Island and the Hamptons, and I don't feel like I've earned the right to make that comparison, but I will say this, the allure of a glorious history is very strong. The desire to protect your family and your family's reputation is very strong. And one of the stunning things in the scriptures is just how bad the history of God's people is, and how honest it is about those failures and that difficulty. Many of the heroes fail in some truly spectacular ways. We need to realize that our desire for heroes, for a glorious family history, is not wrong but misplaced. The true family we need is in God, is in Christ. There is only one true hero. So Stephen is arguing that, hey, your tradition is holding you back. Your pride in your family is holding you back and keeping you from telling the truth. And finally, we often refuse salvation because of the pride in ourselves. He ends the message here. If you look with me at 51 through 53, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist 
the Holy Spirit. What's your heritage? Your heritage is you resist God. That's who you are. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your did not your fathers persecute? Which one was able to come through and not be persecuted? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen is saying, there, there is a venue here. This is a hard thing for them to hear. But there's also a way out. He's saying that the path forward is they have to accept that these things are true. That the people who come into the kingdom of God come with nothing. For those with nothing, God offers everything. This path is going to be personally, emotionally, and professionally costly. They're going to have to say, we were the religious rulers and we killed God. We don't know him like we said we did. And we have to repent of that. They have to say, we have claimed that our fathers were the prophets, but our fathers were the disobedient ones. They have to say that we have this tradition and we have abused it and failed to use it to point us towards the right one. That is the way forward. They refuse to do it. Well, I talked about the great divorce. One passage that uh, I really love that stands out to me, and I'm going to read you a bit from it. You'll have to excuse me. I'm an English teacher. Um, the, there's a, a woman who is, has come from hell on her bus, and she's approached by a friend of hers, and one of the differences between the spirits from heaven and the ghosts, as he called them, from hell, is the ghosts look very transparent, and uh, they do not look glorious like the spirits. And the spirit invites this woman, to come with him to the mountain. And they have this conversation. She says, looking like a ghost, very transparent, uh, how can I go out like this among a lot of people with real solid bodies? It's far worse than going out with nothing on would have been on earth. Have everyone staring through me? And the spirit says, oh, I see. Well, yeah, we're all a bit ghostly when we first arrived, you know. That'll wear off. Just come out and try. But they'll see me. What does it matter if they see you? I'd rather die. But you died already. There's no good trying to do that again. The ghost made a sound, something between a sob and a snarl. I wish I'd never been born. It said, what are we born for? For infinite happiness, said the spirit. You can step out into it at any moment. But I'll tell you, they'll see me. An hour hence, and you will not care. A day hence, and you will laugh at it. Don't you remember on earth there were things too hot to touch? with your finger, but you could drink them all right. Shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. What Stephen is inviting his audience to do is to drink the cup to the bottom, to drink the cup of shame to the bottom. We have nothing to bring to our king. It is only by grace and grace alone that we are received by God. To make it to the mountain, to follow Christ, we have to drink the cup. All God demands of us is nothing, to come empty-handed. And I want you to notice, as we wrap up, what's happening in this story, is the people who have pride and tradition and family and self, they're about to unjustly stone God's messenger to death. They're proving exactly what he's saying. He's saying God sends his messengers and you guys just kill them. And they are about to demonstrate that firsthand. 
Because when given the choice between all of those things and God, they don't choose God. There's something amazing there that happens at the end, though, and I want, I want to read this together. Look at 7.54. Now, when they heard these things, he's accusing them of clinging to these things over God. They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now there's this interesting thing going on. We make a big deal in our songs, in our hymns. We talk about the silence of Jesus. Isaiah 53, the silent sufferer, the lamb. When Jesus came before Pilate, when he came before the authorities, he was silent. What was he not saying? Well, I think what he was not saying is Jesus could have at any point said, I'm totally innocent. These people cling to this and that and this and that. They cling to their tradition and their family and their self and their righteousness and their works and their performance. And they cling to their resume and how they look on social media and their vanity and their houses and all this. That's the stuff they cling to. They are guilty. I am innocent. They are the ones who deserve to die. And Jesus would have been 100% accurate, 100% right to say that. But he was silent when he stood there. And he was silent so that he could speak on our behalf to the one who created us. This ending, when he says the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, some commentators have said it's really interesting that Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of God, but he's standing. And our best guess is that Jesus is standing because at that moment, he is speaking for Stephen. He is interceding for Stephen and saying, he's mine. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. And as he casts his gaze upward, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. Don't look to your traditions to save you. Look to the source of all good things. Don't look to your family to define you. Christ is your family. Don't look to yourself to pull you through. Look to the righteousness of Christ. And I'll end with this. If you are in Christ, no matter what you face, when you cast your eyes up, there is one who speaks for you to God. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, this morning, Jesus, the Son of God, stands before the throne of God and says, that one is mine. And if you're still clinging to something other than God, if you are still clinging to something else, that's an empty road. God's not at the end of it. So my charge to you is come with empty hands. We have nothing but what God has given us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the ministry of Stephen, the ministry of Stephen to us. We have so many good things in our lives, and when we see you as the end of those good things, we actually can appreciate those good things as we should. We will love our families more. We will love our traditions and our symbols more. We will even love ourselves more in a weird way 
Father, we know that when we see you as the end of those things, it redeems all the rest. But God, we know that if we leave you out, there is only death. Father, you love us, you came for us, you have demonstrated time and time again how much you love us, the cost you are willing to pay for us. May we simply be honest about what we bring to you, which is nothing. May we cast ourselves upon you to deliver us. And in Jesus' name, amen.